Welcome to Women Got Game, where we uncover untold stories of extraordinary women in sports across Northwest Ohio and beyond. I'm Sophia Fisher, and we're going to celebrate the evolution of female athletes, coaches, and sports enthusiasts. Let's dive into a world often overlooked in the broader sports narrative. Ready to explore? Let's play. On today's episode of Women Got Game, we'll be discussing Title IX as it relates to women's sports. Title IX is over 50 years old and was signed into law in 1972. While the presence of female athletes has only grown since then, and the gap between men and women in terms of interest in sport has narrowed significantly over the last 50 years. A report from Nielsen focused on women in sport reflected how athletes such as Serena Williams and Simone Biles have taken over the baton from pioneering women such as Billie Jean King, Catherine Schweitzer, and Nadia Comaneci, and many others. Today, almost 50% of the world's female population is interested in sport. I don't think we could have this discussion today on Title IX without mentioning the Women's Sports Foundation founder, Billie Jean King. In 1974, she founded this organization. She's been a longtime champion for equality and social change. And the organization has created new inroads for girls and women inside and outside of sports, as well as events such as National Girls and Women in Sports Day, which is an annual day of observance held during the first week of February to acknowledge the accomplishments of female athletes, recognize the influence of sports participation for female athletes, and honor the progress and advocation for equality for women in sports. Not only did 2023 commemorate the 50th anniversary of Title IX, but some people will also remember Billie Jean King's victory over Bobby Riggs in the Battle of the Sexes. But it reinforces how far women's tennis and women's sports have come over the last half century. However, social progress is often imagined as a gradual shift in the cultural consciousness over a long period of time. Title IX challenged this notion. As we celebrate numerous accomplishments, influencers, and leadership of female athletes, the progress of women's sports over the last half century is as incredible as it is, unfortunately, incomplete. Billie Jean King was recently quoted as saying, it's changing, but we really have a long way to go still. Fortunately, here to help us navigate the complexities of Title IX is our guest. Marissa Pollack is a civil rights attorney and Title IX expert consultant. Since 2004, she served on the School of Kinesiology faculty at the University of Michigan, teaching undergraduate and graduate courses in sports law and ethics, sports and public policy, and race and cultural issues in sport. She is a graduate of the University of Michigan and the University of Michigan Law School. As an undergraduate at Michigan, Marissa was a four-year letter winner and two-time co-captain of the women's tennis team and was among the first women in Michigan history to be awarded a varsity block M and an athletic scholarship. 
As a lawyer and advocate, she was later instrumental in eliminating century-old gender restrictions on varsity club memberships at Michigan and was elected to the M Club as the first female president in 1999 to 2000. Marissa was also among the initial inductees in the University of Michigan M Women Academic and Athletic Hall of Honor. And in 2002, she was the first woman athlete inducted into the State of Michigan Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. She has lectured widely on topics of sex discrimination in sport, Title IX, and served as a lead counsel in Title IX litigation on behalf of women athletes, coaches, and administrators. Marissa is also the author of the acclaimed college textbook, The Introduction to Legal and Ethical Issues in Sport. Marissa, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you, Sophia. Glad to be here. Before we dive in, can you tell us how you first became interested in Title IX initiatives or what influenced you to choose your career path? Yeah, uh, there's uh, a lot of background uh, in response to that question, but uh, basically I always uh, had an interest in law. I knew I was going to uh, attend law school. I come from a family of lawyers. Uh, But my particular experience in sports and sex discrimination in sport as a, uh, even as a young person, uh, became a real personal and professional area of concern for me. So as I uh, went through law school and uh, engaged in a traditional law practice in both Chicago and Detroit, I uh, started to take on more and more civil rights cases uh, that involve uh, sex discrimination in particular. And using my own background uh, in athletics, um, really delved into some uh, discriminatory issues that uh, relate to women in sport, whether it's K through 12 or um, college sports. So I devoted a lot of time uh, both writing and lecturing and then actually litigating cases involving uh, women and girls in sport. Great. So did you, uh, I know you played sports, um, but did you yourself ever experience any issues relative uh, to uh, Title IX? Yes, uh, most certainly. I came around in an era um, just pre-Title IX. So I was in the high, in public high school in uh, the early 1970s, uh, before, uh, right around the time of Title IX's enactment. Uh, but my own experience was my high school had no girls athletic programs. Um, I was an accomplished tennis player and tried out for the boys team and actually made the boys team. Uh, But it turned out there was a state association athletic policy that banned mixed team participation. And as a result, uh, I wasn't allowed to play on the boys team, even though I had qualified and even though there was no girls' opportunities available. Um, Ultimately, that case uh, um, was actually filed by, on behalf of other girls who were similarly situated um, and in the state of Michigan, and it led to uh, all the way to the U.S. Court of Appeals overturning that rule that banned uh, mixed-team participation. This was Uh, right when Title IX had been enacted, but there was no real remedy under Title IX to take care of 
that particular situation. So that case uh, really impacted me. Um, you know, I had made the team and every uh, had a coach who was supportive, but uh, association rules prohibited my playing. In fact, we would have had to forfeit uh, if they kept me on the roster. So um, that's a, sol- a small snippet of my own experience. I can add to that, you know, at the University of Michigan as one of the first varsity athletes, uh, we um, had very, very limited resources. Um, we had to, we had limited practice time. Uh, we had uh, had to take care of our own travel. We had a limited travel budget to begin with. We had to sleep four to a room, two to a bed. Uh, this was in the early days of Title IX, and yet most schools, including University of Michigan, were not in compliance with a lot of the requirements. So this was something that really personally impacted me as a as a young person. You can add to that we didn't have locker rooms. Uh, we had one uniform. <laughs> um, we had to do our own had to do our own laundry. We had to drive ourselves to matches. If you could imagine that going on today, um, it would really be a, a cause of great public concern. So um, that theme sort of really stuck with me. And even though I love my alma mater and I'm very devoted as a grad of University of Michigan and its law school, um, you know, I, I still speak out and lecture a lot of my uh, my own students, uh, many of whom are varsity athletes and you know, uh, so they have a sense of history of what it was like um, back in the day. Yeah. So speaking of the history for the listeners today, in simple terms, what is if someone's not familiar with Title IX, what is Title IX and, and how could how could you explain it in a way that would, you know, instead of just being uh, the generalities around, you know, men versus women, what is Title IX really? Quite generally, Title IX is a, a federal civil rights law. And it it's, was enacted in 1972, and it really is quite uh, uh, limited in its actual language. Uh, it just prohibits sex discrimination in uh, educational programs that receive federal financial assistance. Um, there had been similar laws in the 1960s uh, uh, protecting against discrimination based on race, color, national origin, but not sex. And so in 1972, this law was passed. It had nothing to do with sports, by the way, um, which a lot of people misunderstand. So it was designed uh, as part of the educational amendments to our Civil Rights Act to prohibit sex discrimination, not just in athletics, but access to higher education, um, um, employment, math and science, band, drama, any type of educational program. Um, So, for example girls were being denied admission into law schools and medical schools at the time. And Title IX would prohibit that um, if it were uh, the denial of admission were based solely on sex. And that was going on really all over the country. Women weren't being admitted into engineering schools and degrees in science and math because they were presumed to, you know, not be 
qualified or interested and that those opportunities should be limited to men. So uh, it does protect against discrimination based uh, boys and men. Uh, For example, I often tell my students if a high school boy wanted to join the drama club and they said, sorry, you know, we only have girls in drama, that would be a Title IX issue. So um, those problems still exist today. Uh, We're seeing less and less um, overt discrimination like we did in areas of schools that refuse to hire women as professors. Um, or to advance them in hiring. Those are Title IX matters as well. But it wasn't until people realized athletics is an educational program, what are we going to do about this? Um, We don't have any athletic programs for girls. About 99% of the public school resources were devoted to boys. And so there was a lot of opposition uh, from major athletic directors and football coaches and politicians across the country that schools, uh, yeah, we'd like to stop discrimination based on sex generally, but not in sports because we can't possibly, it will harm somehow or diminish opportunities for men, which of course wasn't what the law was about at all. Um, But that was the fear. That was the fear. And eventually Uh, the federal government came up with regulations to more clearly define what it should look like as to athletics. So they said, well, you have to provide fair participation opportunities. That seems fair. Uh, You have to provide uh, comparable scholarship opportunities as it relates to college. And then you have to treat men and women, if you're going to have an athletic program, treat them fairly, equitably in things like facilities and locker rooms. As I said, at Michigan, we didn't have a, we played tennis in a building with eight locker rooms for various men's sports. We didn't have a locker room. We had to change in the uh, bathroom. So um, those were the types of areas that Title IX eventually began to be applied to as it relates to athletics. But there was It became a very controversial law, although you would think, you know, civil rights and equity uh, shouldn't be such an issue of of great uh, contention, but it has been. You know, and heading this direction, too, I think there were some cases like uh, Brown University and some other ones that I think, um, you know, kind of were, I think, more uh, publicly uh, talked about and 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 sport, but but really, when you talked about the opportunities, you know, you did bring in the athletics with the academic pieces of it. But when we're speaking about women's sports specifically, and you did mention some things as far as locker room facilities and whatnot, how far have we moved the needle in modern day? But yet, have we moved it far enough? This is something you know. Really, you can just look at the data. There's no question that. Um, Title IX has led to tremendous changes and increases in opportunities uh, for women. Uh, but uh, if we look at the the data, uh, we haven't quite narrowed the gap. For example, if you look at numbers from just prior to Title IX in high school and college boys and girls uh, participating in sport, in uh, high school, 
that number was one in 27 girls participated in sport. And the raw numbers were less than uh, 300,000. That number for girls is now well over 3 million. So the, the dramatic impact can't be questioned. But if you look at the corresponding numbers for boys, uh, there are still more than a million oppor- more opportunities for boys in high school. So, so which, by the way, shows us uh, opportunities did not diminish for boys as, as uh, they increased for girls. Uh, but the gap was substantially narrowed. But if you look at that gap today, it's still pretty substantial. Girls uh, represent about 42, 43% of high school athletes. In college, the gap went uh, uh, significantly increased for women in college sports um, from virtually zero uh, pre-Title IX to now over 250, somewhere around 250,000 women varsity athletes. But that reflects about 44% of current college athletes. So while the progress has uh, without a doubt been uh, significant in terms of numbers uh, and the gap has substantially narrowed, it hasn't fully narrowed. So what do you think are the biggest myths or misconceptions around Title IX and athletics? There's a few um, that I would point out for you. One is there's sort of a, a belief by some that this somehow imposes quotas on schools uh, to uh, have certain numbers of men and women uh, in their athletic programs. All the courts that have looked at this issue have said, no, Title IX doesn't impose quotas. There are several ways that schools can comply with Title IX to provide uh, equal opportunity without imposing uh, quotas. There's also a misconception that uh, somehow Title IX uh, is based on eliminating or, or uh, reducing men's sport opportunities. That's expressly uh, disfavored practice. Uh, the Title IX regulations specifically point out eliminating men's sport is not the way to achieve equity. Some schools have done that. They've cut certain men's sports. But um, those are financial decisions made by um, school athletic departments. And um, many schools have been able to increase opportunities for women without diminishing or eliminating men's sports. And then another misconception that comes to mind is the the idea that somehow Title IX mandates uh, identical sports or identical budgets. That's not the case at all. A school could offer certain sports for men, let's say uh, wrestling and ice hockey, and not have corresponding sports for women. Um, Title IX looks at the overall sport opportunities for men and women in any particular athletic program. So um, you could have uh, 10 sport offerings on the men's side and 14 on the women's side and still not uh, achieve compliance. It depends on 
the participation numbers in each sport. But there's no mandate that you have identical sports. If you have 110 football players, you don't have to have a comparable women's sport with 110 participants. That's just not the case. You also don't have to have identical budgets. It's built into Title IX that some sports are more expensive than others. Uh, Once again, football comes to mind. And those differences are uh, recognized as being uh, legitimate. Title IX doesn't really examine dollars spent by a particular program other than uh, when they examine scholarship allocation. But other than that, it's really not about money or expenditures. It's about fairness of opportunity and treatment. So how would you describe the current climate that we're in and issues that still remain, you know, respectively to Title IX and gender equity compliance in schools and universities across the country? It might surprise people that the vast majority of schools and institutions are not in compliance. Uh, Last I've looked, more than 80 percent are not. So even though there's been a lot of celebrations and uh, congratulations on the 50th anniversary of Title IX just a couple years ago, uh, the fact remains most schools are not in compliance. Um, I deal with many uh, high schools and uh, uh, colleges and universities reviewing their uh, programs to assist them in compliance. And I can assure you many schools at all levels are still lagging behind. They're lagging behind in equitable opportunities for girls and women, they're lacking behind uh, very notably in the uh, treatment of men and women athletes. Some of the areas identified by the uh, Office for Civil Rights, such as equipment, supplies, facilities, travel, medical, even medical training facilities, locker rooms. Uh, There's a lot of disparities that still exists, even in, in major programs that might might surprise you. Yeah, so we're just not there yet, and and we continue to make strides. But, but, but before we finish today um, uh, talking with you, I really have to ask you about your thoughts on NIL, name, image, and likeness, as they intersect with Title IX in regards to balancing economic empowerment of athletes through the NIL monetization endorsements. And then while we're trying to strike a fair balance, you know, to ensure that both male and female athletes benefit from NIL opportunities, and we're still trying to uphold all these other principles, I'm really curious to know what you think. Yeah, this is certainly uh, one of the biggest areas currently going on in, in all of college sport, and uh, most the NIL is really a good thing that that college athletes um, at all levels had, but particularly in high-profile sports, were being exploited and not having the benefit to, to even be compensated for their, their own name, image, and likeness, uh, uh, as any other student would be in any field. But uh, due to NCAA requirements, they couldn't. So now that that's changed, you raise a good question, how does Title IX apply. Um, We see, um, we're only starting to be able to analyze this. We see a lot of women uh, athletes among the highest earners um, in uh, NIL data, but overall uh, male athletes are still 
well over 60% of the NIL money. Now that, um, Sophia, in and of itself is not a Title IX violation. Let's say all of that money is truly coming from third parties um, who are um, compensating the athletes for NIL-related services. That's perfectly okay. Uh, It doesn't have have any bearing on Title IX. Where it becomes a Title IX issue um, is if the university is directly or somehow facilitating those deals. The reason for that distinction, third parties aren't bound by Title IX, but educational institutions are. So if, for example, University X um, uh, is uh, recruiting their male athletes with promises of NIL opportunity or they're uh, engaging in uh, financial literacy training for their male athletes or they're promoting or marketing their male athletes for NIL money um, and working together facilitating with uh, third parties to make those payments, then it becomes a Title IX issue because Title IX requires, uh, uh, and if they aren't doing so for women, I should add, um, Title IX requires comparable treatment in areas like publicity, recruitment, promotion, marketing and promotion of athletes. So if somehow the school is only promoting and marketing these opportunities for their male athletes or doing so in a in a treating them more favorably than the women athletes then we do have a title IX issue but we're really early in the game so to speak right now in that area uh, we really need more clarification uh, possibly from congress on what to do about this schools are uh, trying to circumvent their responsibilities um, by saying, oh, we, you know, we have nothing to do with these deals. Uh, So it remains to be seen if any schools will be held accountable for these types of uh, disparities. But there is a notable gap in the overall money between men and women athletes. But again, in and of itself, it's not a Title IX violation until we ascertain that the schools are directly involved. Sure. I have one more question for you today, Marissa. What would you tell the audience that's a diverse audience, and if it's an athletic director or administrator, what is one thing with Title IX that you would like to see happen uh, in the future? Where, where do you think we need to focus our efforts on, and what does that look like for you? If you could have in a perfect world uh, make one um, blueprint or blue book for everyone to follow, you know, what would be that initial first step to, to move this Title IX to where it needs to go? I'd say uh, education. Um, I think coaches and administrators and university officials are really not always uh, fully educated on what Title IX requires and what it doesn't. And the more we educate people on what the federal law and its regulations involve, I think we can help eliminate some of the myths. It really just comes down to equity and fairness, and I would you know, stress to those coaches and administrators that 
uh, we should all be able to agree on equity in fair and fairness uh, in all of our educational programs, and uh, in this case, in athletics in particular. Um, I think we're uh, we've moved a long way toward acceptance of that general view. But sometimes uh, today we still see Title IX as a sort of as a scapegoat for schools that can't afford fully funded programs and they blame the law and the regulations when in fact the law really is all about non-discrimination and, and fairness. So that would be my hope. I don't know that we'll see that anytime soon, but the law is really the the driving mechanism to to accomplish that. It's not going to happen on its own. Well, definitely. Well, what an interesting topic, and and, and I'm sure that we could talk uh, for a long time about this, and I appreciate you joining with us, and hopefully you'll you'll be a guest in another time, as I know Title IX is is very broad, and and it is a hot topic in this day and age, and all the work you've done is is amazing, for the especially when it comes to women's sports. Obviously, there's a lot of opportunity there to continue to uh, to shape and empower women in sport and academia. So thank you so much again for taking the time today, and uh, we appreciate you. Well, thank you very much, Sophia. Um, I've enjoyed uh, speaking with you, and um, very happy to participate. Looking ahead, the future of women's sports under Title IX promises a continued journey towards unprecedented equality and inclusivity. As legal frameworks evolve and societal perspectives broaden, we anticipate a landscape where female athletes will enjoy expanded opportunities, heightened visibility, enhanced support, all the while shaping a more diverse and empowering era for women in sports. I'd like to give a huge thank you to our guest, Marissa Pollack. Marissa, you got game. I also would like to thank Chris Pfeiffer, my executive producer at WGTE. For more information, visit our website at wgte.org slash womengotgame. I'm Sophia Fisher, your host and producer. Join us next time. WGTE. Voices around us. WGTE is supported in part by the American Rescue Plan Act funds allocated by the City of Toledo and the Lucas County Commissioners and administered by the Arts Commission.